Well, thank you, Dr. Steve. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the uh, uh, guys here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. While you're turning there, before I lived here in McKinney, I lived in Louisville, uh, which Lance Walker called Loserville and hurt my feelings, but I lived in Louisville uh, before moving here, and uh, near my home there was a gym, okay? The gym was within walking distance, and so I decided that I would join the gym. Now, I did that not to get swole, whatever swole is. I did that because exercising is a great way to fight anxiety, okay? So I joined this gym near our home, and uh, one day my brother-in-law called me, and he said, you know what, let's, let's go work out together. Let's go to the gym. Now, I did not want to go to the gym that day. I was not feeling it. I uh, didn't have a great day. I, I just didn't want to go to the gym. That's not the place that I wanted to be. But my brother-in-law said, you know what, let's go to the gym together. And so I said, okay. And so he pulls up to my house in a blue Mini Cooper, okay? He's 6'7", I'm 6'1". And he pulls up in a blue Mini Cooper. Now, I don't know if you know what a Mini Cooper is, but it's not a real car. It's like a toy that you can get in and get killed on the highway. That's its motto. The Mini Cooper motto is if you get hit by an 18-wheeler, you just evaporate. And so he pulls up in his Mini Cooper, and we both get into it, okay? And I'm thinking, this is not the coolest way to show up to the gym. When you show up to the gym, you want to look tough. You want to have a, a shirt that says, I eat weights for dinner or something like that. And so we pull up to the gym in this Mini Cooper, and we get out of the Mini Cooper, and I look over, and we're also wearing the exact same shoes, Okay? Exact same shoes, okay? So I'm going to a place I don't want to be. I have to get there a way that I don't really want to get there. And then when I get there, things don't go great. They don't go the way that I want them to go. That's pretty much where we're at in the story of Jonah. Jonah has to go to Nineveh, and he doesn't want to be there. And he doesn't really like the way that he got there because this fish becomes his uber to get him to Nineveh when he is being uh, disobedient. And then when he gets there, we'll see throughout the story of Jonah that the people repent, which is the last thing that he wanted to happen. And so let me give you a uh, summary in case you're just now joining us on where we are in the book of Jonah. God calls this prophet, Jonah, to go to a place called Nineveh, which is in Assyria, to pronounce a word of judgment. And instead of obeying God, Jonah rebels. He gets on a ship and he goes to a place called Tarshish. We don't know where Tarshish is, but here's what we do know about Tarshish. It's not Nineveh, okay? So he is going west and Nineveh is in the east. And because he's being disobedient, God causes the storm to arise on the sea. And so Jonah becomes this figure of substitutionary atonement. To appease the wrath of God and save the lives of the sailors, his life is sacrificed. But instead of just destroying him, which God could have done for his disobedience, God sends some type of sea creature. The Hebrew word is dog. It just means animal in the sea. We don't know if it is a whale. We don't know if it is a fish. We don't know if it is some type of enormous dolphin. We have no idea, okay? But he is in this animal for three days, which gives you some thinking time. When you're rebelling against God and all you can do is lay in this fish surrounded by, you know, hot air and it's completely dark, it helps you reassess your priorities in life. And so Jonah's there and he cries out to God for mercy and uh, the fish spits him out on uh, the land and that is where we are in the story today. Now, we don't know how much time has gone by from Jonah 2 to Jonah 3. We don't know if Jonah went and took a shower first. We don't know if he gets spit up and he has to walk for a long time to get to Nineveh. We don't know how much time has gone by, but there is a type of continuity to the story, 
I don't think chapter 3 is like 20 years after this event or something. There is some sort of continuity to the story. So before we get into verse 1, let me pray for us, and then we will tackle this text. Let's pray. We bless you, Father, through the Son and by the Holy Spirit, and we confess that you are great, and we ask that you would send the Spirit to change our hearts, to move in our lives, to convict us of sin, to uh, help us see your Word. We confess that your word is clear, that the Bible is clear. We believe in the perspicuity, the clarity of Scripture, but we confess that because of our sin and because of our presuppositions, we don't see that clear Bible very well sometimes. And so we ask the Spirit to uh, change our hearts, to unfog our glasses, that we might behold wonderful things in your word. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Verses 1 through 2. Let's take a look. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Let's look at the first part. Let's look at verse 1. We're going to break this down really line by line here, okay? Verse 1 says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, okay? Chapter 3 in Jonah is supposed to parallel chapter 1. In chapter 1, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah arises and rebels. Here in chapter 3, God will tell Jonah to go to Nineveh. He will arise, but this time he will obey. Look at the parallel here from Jonah 1, 1 through 3. We're going to put it up on the screen. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Notice the same kind of language in our text this morning, only this time Jonah will begrudgingly obey. Now I want you to see a few things in verse 1 before we move to verse 2, okay? First I want you to see this that God is a God of second chances. If I was God and Jonah had rebelled, I would have just killed him and I would have gotten a better prophet to do my bidding. But God is not done with Jonah yet. God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. God is a God of second virginities. God is a God of mercy and love and grace. And so though Jonah has high-handedly rebelled against God, God is still going to pursue Jonah. God is still going to use Jonah. God is still in covenant with Jonah. That's the first thing I want you to see just from verse 1, okay? The second thing I want you to see is that God will win if you are running from him and you're his child. If you are a Christian and you are walking in some type of high-handed disobedience, okay? Not from something you think God is telling you in your head, but something in the Bible. You're doing something the Bible forbids. You're forbidding something the Bible allows. You're walking in some type of unrepentant sin. Listen, God will pursue you, and he will win. Your desire to run from him is not as strong as his desire to run after you. Your desire to sin is not as strong as his desire to sanctify you. He will win. That's part of his love and part of his mercy and part of his grace. There is no more wrath for believers. Amen? God never has a wrath. He never has a hatred for you. As a Christian, that has been absorbed by Christ. All that wrath has already been paid for. But God, in his fatherly goodness, will lovingly discipline you if you, like Jonah, are running from him and continue to run and refuse to repent. He will win, okay? I remember uh, being a member of a church one time, and uh, a lady came up to the pastor. This is a true story. I like that I qualify that. None of my other stories are true. Just this one. Uh, Uh, So a lady comes up to the pastor after the service, and she says, "Uh, Pastor Tom, I I disagree with what you said. You said in your sermon that homosexuality is a sin, okay? And she said, I'm here to tell you that I am both a Christian and I'm a lesbian. I'm both, and I think that I can be both. And this pastor very graciously said, okay, well, let, let let me address something with you. He said, one of three things is true. 
He either said, A, then you're not really a Christian because Christians love Jesus more than anything else, and to love Jesus is to obey Jesus. Two, you are a Christian and you are currently living in a, in a same-sex relationship, but God will cause you to repent. You can live in a period of unrighteousness, but you cannot stay there. He said, or thirdly, God will kill you and take you home so you cannot remain in your state of rebellion. That's pretty strong. That's biblical, but it's strong, and he's right. That's the point he's trying to make, that if you're really a Christian, you don't get Jesus and your sin. You have to pick. You can have Jesus, you can have your sin, but what you don't get is both of them together. That doesn't exist. That's not a real option. That is a unicorn. That's not something that you get to pick, okay? That God will bring you to repentance. So here's what I want to say. If you feel like the walls are closing in on you and you're wrestling with some type of sin, God is not asking you to clean yourself up. He's not asking you to try harder. He's not asking you to do better. Here's what he's doing. He's asking you to tap out. He's asking you to rest. Faith is not striving. If you feel like you're bench pressing and God just keeps putting more and more weights on, he's not asking you to push harder. He's asking you to let go of the bar and let him take it, and he is giving mercy, okay? That is his grace to you. One of the things that uh, my son and I will do, so he's three. I'm 33, just to give you kind of an age gap there. I'm a bit older. And uh, one of the things that we will do is we love to wrestle because he's a little boy, right? So we will turn on rock music and we will take off our shirts and we will wrestle each other. We'll throw him on the bed and he'll come and start trying to punch me and I'll block him and these kind of things. But sometimes if he's getting too crazy, I'll put him in some type of lock, okay? Now, I'm not applying pressure. He's three, okay? But I'll put him in some type of lock because I want him to know he can have fun and play with daddy, but at the end of the day, daddy's stronger. At the end of the day, daddy wins, okay? So I'll put him in like a little lock and it's the most adorable thing. He'll take his little hand and he'll tap out and I'll let go, okay? And then we'll keep, we'll, keep, you know, we'll keep wrestling and we'll doing these kind of things. God will do that to you if he needs to. God will arm bar you and break your arm if he needs to. Why? Because he loves you more than you love you and he wants your sanctification. And we see that even just in verse 1 here with Jonah. Now let's look at verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now I want you to see something you can't see in English, but you can see it in Hebrew. When originally Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, he is told in Hebrew to call out against it. Here, literally in Hebrew, even though it says against here in the English text, it says literally to call to it. These are different prepositions in Hebrew. Why is there the language change? Well, to call out against something is more of a word of judgment. It's more of a word of condemnation. Now, even in the text, you start to see some hope of mercy. Now he's not proclaiming a message against it. He's going to proclaim a message to Nineveh. So you start to see that there might be mercy. You start to see that around this cloud of judgment, there's this little silver lining of God's mercy. You start to see that here in chapter 3. Now look at the last part of verse 2 here, okay? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Okay, see that phrase, the message that I tell you? Literally in Hebrew it says, call to her the calling that I am wording to you, okay? Here is the idea. Jonah doesn't get to say what he wants to say. Jonah has to say what God tells him, okay? Jonah is a bad prophet, but he is not a false prophet. He doesn't get to say the message he wants to. He has to give God's message, and he has to give it exactly the way that God tells him to give this message, okay? This applies to us today when it comes to the Bible. We are to teach the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. We don't get to add to it. We don't get to take away from it. God has given us his word, and our job is to proclaim that word. So let me ask you this question. What verse of the Bible would you be embarrassed to read to a group of people if you weren't allowed to comment on it? 
You just had to open to some place in the Bible and read a place from Scripture. What verses would embarrass you to read to a group of people if you weren't allowed to apologize for it, if you weren't allowed to clarify it? That is probably a place where you, like Jonah, are wanting to make your message God's message. Would you be embarrassed about what God says about the roles of men and women? Would you be embarrassed about what God says regarding Canaanite genocide in the Old Testament? Where would you be embarrassed about God's Word? That's a place where we might be tempted to twist God's Word. Jonah has to obey God. We have to obey God. Jonah has to preach God's message. We have to preach God's message. When you go to the Bible, you should not go to it just looking for it to affirm you. It will affirm you in some things. It will affirm certain things you already believe that are these major doctrinal orthodoxy kind of positions. But when you go to Scripture, you should go looking for the Bible to rebuke you. You don't stand over the Bible. The Bible stands over you and me. So when you go to the Bible, you should go to it looking for it to correct you, looking for it to rebuke you, looking for it to tell you that you are wrong. Not where you already hold a position and you go to the Bible to proof text it, to try to find, uh, to, to prove your point. Instead, allow the Bible to rebuke you. Jonah is called to be obedient, and we are supposed to see something about that. Jonah is called to preach God's message and not change it. We are supposed to see something about that. Now let's look together in verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Okay, so let, let me explain a little bit about Nineveh so this makes sense. You might be thinking to yourself, Jonah, why don't you just obey God? Anybody ever thought that? You think, if I was Jonah and God told me to go to Nineveh, yeah, I mean, I might not like it, but I would do it. It's way better than getting thrown into the sea or eaten by some sort of big fish or something like that. Let me explain some things about Nineveh so that this will make sense to you why Jonah is so reticent to go, okay? Nineveh was this great city in Assyria, okay? Assyria is in much of what is today modern-day Iraq. They spoke Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian. It's this ancient culture, and historically, it is an enemy of of Israel. According to Genesis 10:11, it was founded by a guy named Nimrod. Isn't that a great name? Any of you pregnant ladies who are having a son, might I recommend Nimrod uh, as a name for a possible option? It had public parks, it had botanical gardens, it even had a zoo. Now here's what you need to know about, uh, about Assyria. They were extremely pagan, okay? They're polytheist. They have idols all throughout the city. They worship a bunch of gods. They worship a goddess named Ishtar, who is a fertility goddess. How do you worship a fertility goddess? You sleep around with a bunch of people. That's how they worshiped. So this is a city that is full of paganism. This is a city that is uh, full of idolatry. It's kind of a modern-day Las Vegas. And in addition to that, the Assyrians are extremely violent. We'll actually see in our text next week that one of the things they repent of specifically is their violence. Now, I'm going to say something here, not to shock you, but so that you can put yourself in the mind of Jonah, okay? The Assyrians, when they would conquer people, they would cut off their body parts, put them in their own mouths, and march them through the city naked. We have reliefs of them putting fish hooks through king's noses to pull them through the city. Those are the Assyrians. Do you, do you see why Jonah might be a little hesitant to go proclaim a word of judgment which might lead to repentance? Let me give you some more modern-day examples. Imagine that you were in the Holocaust, okay? Imagine that you were a Jew and you were in Auschwitz or Birkenau or Treblinka or one of these places, and you survived. And then God told you to go back to Germany and proclaim this message to Nazis because God was going to bring them to repentance. Would you want to do that? 
Do you want repentance for them or do you want restitution? Do you want repentance and mercy for them or do you want recompense? You see, we want recompense. We don't want just pure mercy. We don't want just pure grace. Or to give you another illustration, let's say you had been a slave in the United States in the 1800s. And after the Civil War, God calls you to go to Birmingham or to go to Atlanta and proclaim a message of forgiveness. Would you want to do that? I wouldn't want to do that. Jonah doesn't want to do that. I wouldn't want forgiveness for them. I wouldn't want grace for them. I want restitution. I want recompense. Assyria, Nineveh, these are enemies of Israel. He doesn't want to go to his enemies that have oppressed God's people and say, God's going to judge you, but you might repent, and I know that God will show you mercy because he just seems to always do that. He just happens to be merciful. That's why Jonah is reticent. That's why Jonah doesn't want to go. We don't like mercy for our enemies. We like vengeance. And Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because of that. Now, Jonah will still go even though his heart's not in it. I, uh, I took an evangelism class in school, and uh, I did not like the class. I think the best way to do evangelism is just to be friends with lost people. And then over time, you get a chance to share the gospel, and it's not weird. But I took this evangelism class, and one of the things that we had to do is we had to use an evangicube on someone. What is an evangicube, you say? Well, let me tell you. It is like a little Rubik's cube that has pictures of the gospel on it. Here's the dark side, because this is your sin. And you do what looks like to be a magic trick. Here's a cross because Jesus died for your sin. Okay, it's this, this little tool that you can use in sharing the gospel. Now, did I evangelicube somebody? Yes. Okay, I used it as a verb there. Okay, I evangelicubed somebody. Did I do it because I love God and I cared about that person's salvation? No way. You know why I did it? To get a good grade. So I went outside. I went to school in downtown Dallas. I went outside and there was a homeless guy. And he's like, sir, can you spare some change? And I said, you know what? I'm going to make you a deal. If you will let me evangelicube you, I will buy you some lunch. And he's like, I don't know what that is, but that sounds good. So I did the whole thing, and then I went and bought him some McDonald's, okay? Now, did I do the right action? Yes. Did I have the right heart? I did not. That's what we're going to see with Jonah. Jonah will go to Nineveh because he doesn't like being eaten by fish, not because he loves the Ninevites. We'll see this several times throughout the rest of Jonah, that his heart has not changed in this, okay? The worst thing you can do is the wrong action with the wrong heart. The best thing you can do is the right action with the right heart. Okay? But sometimes you end up doing the right action while you wait for your heart to catch up. If you have the option of doing the right action with the wrong heart or the wrong action with the wrong heart, you do the first. Okay? And so we see here Jonah who is going to uh, go into, city, uh, into the city. Now I want you to see something else here. Okay? See where it says here in verse 3, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Do you see that phrase? There is a play on words here in Hebrew. Okay? This, word, this phrase can mean that the city is really big. The text will speak to its length and breadth and these kind of things. It is really big. But in Hebrew, it can mean that it is an important city, meaning that it's an important city to God. I actually think that there is a Hebrew play on words here, that Nineveh is a great city and that there's a bunch of people in it and it's really big and that it is important to God, that the God of Jonah, the God of Israel is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of all nations. In Genesis 12, the plan is not, dear Abraham, have a bunch of kids and I'll only care about Israel. It's that through your descendants will come a Messiah and through, all, and through that Messiah, all nations will be blessed. God has always been about redeeming people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, and he uses Israel and the descendants of Israel to do that. Now look at the end of the verse. What does it mean when it says that Nineveh was three days' journey in breadth? 
that it was three days' journey in breadth. Let me tell you why this is concerning. We don't know of a city in the ancient world that is that big. The ancient city of Rome is not that big, where it would take you three days to walk across the city. And so scholars wrestle through what does it mean to say that Nineveh is a three days journey across. There's a few options. Some people think that this is a reference to this ancient practice where you would take three days to deliver a message, okay? You don't just run up to somebody and spew your message. You come into the city, you introduce yourself, you bring a gift, that's day one. Day two, you share your message. Day three, you pack up all your things, visit the souvenir gift shop, and then you leave the city, okay? That's what some people think. Other people think that the reason it talks about three days is not that that's just how long it would take if you just marched right through the city, but how long it would take for Jonah to go through the city and proclaim the message, okay? They don't have PA systems back then. Jonah can't just tweet this out, God's going to destroy Nineveh, hashtag blessed. He can't do any of that kind of stuff. That doesn't exist. So he has to go through the city and proclaim the message, and so some think it would take three days to fully proclaim the message to the city of Nineveh, okay? Some people think it means that the city is three days in breath, assuming that you stop and actually view the city, not where you just kind of mall walk, march through it as fast as you can, but rather you visit, you know, the zoo and you ride the yield dart rail and you visit the, uh, you know, Capitol building or whatever it is, that it would take three days to fully see the city. Others think, and I think this is probably a pretty, pretty good answer, is that when it's talking about uh, Nineveh, it's not just talking about the city proper, it's talking about the region under the control of Nineveh. So in the ancient world, you would have a city surrounded by a wall, but you would have land outside those walls, land that belongs to the king, land that belongs to the people, land that was still under your control. And so some people think that that's the reference, that Nineveh is so big, not just the city proper, but the amount of uh, land that they control. Now, however you take it, here is the point. Nineveh is enormous. Nineveh is huge. We know this from historical records. Nineveh was a very big city in the ancient Near East, okay? When I say that New York is the city that never sleeps, do I mean people in New York never sleep? I don't. Do I mean businesses in New York never close? I don't. What I mean is it's a bustling city. And so in the same way, I think what's going on here is simply trying to say that this city is very large. If you want to pre preach a message, it will take several days to do so. If you want to walk across the entire region, it will take several days to do so. That's the point. Now look at verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Don't you wish our sermons were that short here at Parkway? We just get up one Sunday and we're like, God is going to judge everyone. Enjoy Golden Corral. Enjoy your lunch, okay? This is the message that Jonah gives to Nineveh. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, I want you to see a few things here. First of all, look at the first part of verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. Why, if this city takes three days to go through, is he going a day's journey in, okay? Here's the reason. The Ninevites are so willing to accept his message, it doesn't even take him all three days. That's the idea. What you're supposed to see is that the Ninevites respond to God better than Jonah. These pagans who are violent and sexually immoral and these kind of things more rapidly hear God's message and obey than does Jonah, who is a prophet of God and should know. That's what you're supposed to see. It doesn't take all three days. It just takes one day, and the word spreads like wildfire. They want to do that. I'll give you an example. When I first met my wife, we met at a friend's birthday party, and the next day, she didn't remember my name. <gasps> she didn't remember my name. 
And so she asked her friend, who is the name of that guy that I was flirting with at the party? And her friend decided to play a prank on her, and her friend told her that my name was David Poupay. Okay? That's what they said, David Poupay. So she now has to think, if I date this guy and we get married, my last name might have to be Poupay, Katie Poupay. So she's writing it down, and she decided, you know what? I like this guy so much. Because of his glory, because... Because I can't even say it with a straight face. I like this guy so much that I'm willing to marry him. I'm willing to date him, even if his last name is Poupe. Now, thankfully, she later learned that my name, last name is Lee. So now people just assume that she's Korean before they meet her, but she doesn't have to deal with the, the Poupe thing, okay? She was so eager, so eager to date me, she didn't care. That's what's going on in Nineveh. They so badly want to respond to God's message, it doesn't take three days. It just takes one day, and the message spreads like wildfire. That's the idea. Now, look at the message that Jonah delivers. By the way, we don't know if this is all he said or if he said more. He might have just given this one sentence, 40 days in Nineveh will be overturned, and that's it, and he might have left. Or he could have given a longer sermon. We just have a summary. The Sermon on the Mount probably took Jesus longer to preach than the 10 minutes it takes to read it, okay? And so a lot of times in the Bible, we're given these summaries. So we don't know if there's more to this, but this, at least in content, summarizes accurately the message that God had Jonah give to Nineveh. Now, a few things I want you to see about this. Why does it say 40 days until Nineveh is overthrown? Why didn't he just go up and say, repent or you'll be overthrown tomorrow? Why doesn't he say three days and Nineveh will be overthrown, like some of our manuscripts say? Why doesn't he say 43 days, which some of our manuscripts who've combined the two manuscripts say? Why does he say 40 days, okay? So I was wrestling through that this last week, trying to think, why 40 days? There's a lot of numbers that are significant in the Bible. Three, seven is like this number of completeness, 1,000. There's all these numbers in the Bible that are really important. Why number 40? What's the significance of the number 40? And here's what I think the significance is. The number 40 in the Bible is typically used for a time of testing, growth, purification, or judgment. Let me say that again. A time where you have 40 mentioned in the Bible is typically a time for testing, growth, purification, or judgment. So typically, when there's a period of 40 in the Bible, it's a time of judgment or it's a time of growth. It's a time of growth and sanctification. I'll give you some examples. How many years does Israel wander in the wilderness? 40. It's a time of judgment to kill off the unfaithful generation. How many days of rain during the flood of Noah? 40 again. It's a period of judgment. It's also a period of growth. Moses spent 40 years before the episode of the burning bush. Moses went up on the mountain to receive God's law for 40 days. David reigned over Israel for 40 years. Solomon reigned in Jerusalem for 40 years. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. He's replaying the role of Israel in the wilderness, but he's being faithful where Israel has failed. Jesus appeared after his resurrection for 40 days, okay? So here's why Jonah's message involves this 40-day period. If you're an original reader of the book of Jonah, and you hear a message of judgment that involves the number 40, do you know what you're going to think about? The wilderness, the flood of Noah. God is serious, and there is a strong pronouncement of judgment. I think that's why he uses 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, one more thing I want you to see in verse 4 that is fascinating. I want you to look at that last word of the sentence, the word there, overthrown. Okay? It's the Hebrew word hafak, and it means to overthrow. It's used, for example, when military, uh, you know, a nation gets overthrown by a military. It's also used when God overthrows nations. It's the exact same word that's used of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But I want you to see that there's something really fascinating here in Hebrew, and I think this is intentional by the author of Jonah. Okay? This word, overthrown, 
can also in Hebrew mean delivered. It can mean not over to overthrow. It can mean to turn over, like to repent, to turn around. There is a play on words here. What Jonah's wanting to do is to say, I hate you, Ninevites. You're going to be destroyed. But even in giving that sentence, a sentence given to him by God, there is this hope of restoration. It's 40 days from now, and you'll be destroyed or delivered. That's kind of the idea. Let me share with you a comment from a uh, Jewish scholar. This guy's actually an uh, Old Testament scholar that specifically deals with the prophets. He's a Jewish guy. His name is Ehud ben Zvi, which is a great Jewish name. Listen to what he says. What Jonah means and what he is saying are not exactly the same. Jonah means to say 40 days more and Nineveh is undone, but the readers notice that he is actually saying 40 days more and Nineveh is overturned. Jonah chooses language that is reminiscent of God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. But the careful readers of the book notice the irony of the situation. Listen to this last line. Jonah's words potentially carry two opposite meanings. A, Nineveh is undone. And B, Nineveh turns over, i.e. reforms itself. Okay? I think that that is an intentional play on words here by the author of Jonah because Jonah wants condemnation, but that's not ultimately what God wants. Okay? Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, we don't know if that means they became believers, okay? We do know what that means is that they believed this message of judgment and are willing to repent, okay? So we don't know their ultimate spiritual state. There are a lot of times in the Old Testament where God will humble somebody and they will repent, but it is just a temporary repentance. Nebuchadnezzar is an example of this, this evil king that God humbles and he repents, but we know from history that Nebuchadnezzar went back to his idolatrous practices and was not faithful, okay? So we don't know if this means that Nineveh gets saved. They become like a satellite campus of Israel. Most likely not. It probably means at least with this message, they're willing to repent of their current sin and turn from it. That's most likely the meaning. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. Why? You don't wear your best clothes when you're mourning. You don't wear your fancy silky shirts or whatever Tim wears up here on Sunday mornings. You wear sackcloth, right? You're, you're sad. You don't fast when it's a celebration. You don't fast on your wedding day. You don't fast on your birthday. Those are times of feasting. You fast when you're sad, when you're being repentant. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Now, I want to do a little systematic theology with you. And by the way, this is just going to be a preview. Please come back next week because Jeff's going to be talking about this at length and it will be much more comprehensive. But I just want to give you a little preview here because I think the text gives you a preview. Here's my question for you. Why do the Ninevites repent if God doesn't say anything about, in the message about repentance? No, notice Jonah's message doesn't say anything about repentance. It says, 40 days and you'll be destroyed. Okay, that's his message. Why then do they repent? And here's why, ready? Because it's a given with the God of the Bible. It's a given with Jonah's God that if you repent, he gives mercy. That's just kind, the kind of God that he is. Look at this passage from Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. That is a given with Jonah's God. That is a given with the God of the Bible. That is a given with whoever authored the book of Jonah, that God is merciful. His pronouncement of judgment always is, implies this possibility of love and mercy and repentance. So let me ask you this question. Does this mean that God changes? Does God change his mind? I would contend to you that God does not change in any way. 
If he changed and became worse, that's a big problem. If he changed and became better, then that means he wasn't great to begin with. So change in God is a huge problem. Let me share with you some passages that show that there is no change in God. Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't just not change his mind, he doesn't change in any way. Malachi 3.6, for I the Lord do not change, therefore you children of Jacob are not consumed. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Romans 11.29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God cannot go back once he's made a promise. And then look at Numbers 23.19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Notice the Bible just explicitly said God doesn't change his mind. Okay? He, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So, let me explain what's going on. How can it be that sometimes in the Bible God declares judgment, and then somebody repents, and then it seems like God changes his mind? Okay? Let me explain what's happening. What's changing there is not God, it's the person. What's changing here is not God, it's Nineveh. Imagine for a second that you have God up here, and there are two columns, there are two silos. In one column is wrath, in the other column is mercy. Nineveh is in the wrath column, so God has wrath. When they repent, they move into the mercy column. Notice that God didn't move, God didn't change, it's Nineveh that changes. When the Bible talks about God changing his mind, that's not literal, it's written in a way that we can understand it. We know what it's like to change our mind because we're foolish. God's not foolish. He knows the future. He's ordained the future. And so it cannot mean the same thing for God. Let me give you a great quote by Reformed theologian Hermann Bavink. There is change around, about, and outside of him. And there is change in people's relations to him, like Nineveh. But there is not change in God himself. You ever heard this phrase? The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. You ever heard that phrase? The idea is that the sun is just being the sun. The sun's doing a great job being the sun. It's just hot, and it's being the sun. And when it shines on clay, the clay gets harder. When it shines on ice, the ice gets softer. It, it melts. So notice, the substance is what changes, whether it's clay or ice, not the sun itself. In the same way, God is just being God. He's unchanging. He's always been equally great. There's no variation or shadow due to change. God is just being God. And when his presence shines down on a lost person, they feel it as wrath. And when his presence shines down on someone who's repentant, they feel it as mercy. So notice what changes is Nineveh, not God. But more on that next week in the lesson. Now, what is the point of this section for Jonah? So if you're here this morning and you think, man, this was Father's Day, I just wanted to sleep in and play golf and my wife made me come to service and now we have to hear about some weird whale guy or fish guy who gives a one-sentence sermon and is now famous, okay? What, what does this have to do with us today? There are two really big applications for us here at Parkway today from this text, okay? Here's the first one. The message of Christianity is very similar to the message of Jonah. It's that there is a judgment coming and we must repent. If you do not know Jesus, you're just here as a visitor checking us out today and you don't know Jesus, here's what God wants you to do. He wants you to become a Christian, 
He doesn't want you to try harder. He doesn't want you to clean yourself up. He wants you to forsake your dreams and yourself and your selfishness and cry out to Jesus for mercy. There will be a judgment day. It's not an if, it is a when. It's going to happen, and you will be judged by whether you do or don't know Jesus. That is going to happen. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for all the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad, okay? So if you don't know Christ, know him, repent, bow the knee, ask him to save you, call him your Lord, turn away from you and make him your highest desire and he will give you mercy. He gives, Jesus is a king that gives a full pardon to anybody that joins his kingdom. That's what you need to hear. Now, if you're somebody though who's already a Christian, I think this is a great passage to encourage us to repent. As Martin Luther would say, the entire Christian life is one of repentance. When you put your faith in Christ, do you just do that one time or is that also a lifeline, lifelong thing? It's a lifelong thing. When you repent, do you just do that one time or is that a lifelong thing? It's a lifelong thing. You're ultimately already forgiven, but we are to continue with repentance in the Christian life. So here's what I want to do. I want to take a second and call us all to repentance, okay? You don't have to raise your hand or do anything like that. I just want you right there while you're in your chair. I'm going to list some things, and if that's you, would you give your sin to Jesus? Would you turn away from that sin? Would you ask for mercy? Because we've seen in this text that God is a God of mercy. Let me list some things. If you have unforgiveness in your heart towards somebody... Would you give that to Christ? Would you repent? Somebody you don't like, it's a former coworker, former friend, former spouse, family member, whatever it might be, would you give that pain to Jesus? Would you repent? Who's it, who is it when you hear their name, you start to get frustrated? Would you repent? Greed, if you have greed in your heart, if you're not content with what God has given you, if you're covetous, you want more and more and more, and you think that you'll be happy when you finally get that boat or finally get that house or finally get that better job. If there's greed in your heart, would you repent? If there's anxiety or fear in your heart where you don't think God loves you and you just don't trust him, would you repent? This is a big one for me. This is one I struggle with a lot. Would you repent for anxiety and sinful fear? Idolatry. The Bible condemns idolatry, and we have a tendency to think we don't struggle with that because we don't worship metal statues. An idol is anything that you love as much or more than God. So let me ask the question this way. What are you obsessed with more than God? What are you obsessed with more than God? Because that thing is an idol. Would you repent? If you're in any type of sexual immorality, would you repent? Pornography, homosexuality, adultery, transgenderism, lustful thoughts or lustful looks at someone who's not your spouse. Are you married but flirting with someone who is not your spouse? Are you walking by your secretary's desk too often just so you can have a little conversation? If there is sexual immorality in your heart, would you repent? Would you repent? Anything demonic? Are you playing with anything demonic? Are you doing, tampering with other religions? Are you playing with an Ouija board? Are you doing anything that would explicitly be evil like that? Would you repent of any of those things? Doing clairvoyance, doing uh, palm reading, any of that kind of stuff. Would you repent of self-righteousness? If you're like Jonah and you look down on those dirty Ninevites, would you repent of self-righteousness? Would you repent of legalism where you're trying to do something to make God love you? You think you're more or less holy based on what you do or don't do apart from trusting Christ. Would you repent of legalism? Everybody look at me. Legalism is not safer than licentiousness, okay? It is not safer for you. It is not safer for your kids. Biblically, it's more dangerous, Okay? There is more mercy for the prostitute that cries at Jesus' feet than the Pharisees, than people like Jonah who are in their legalism. Would you repent of legalism? Would you repent of pride? What do you think that you have that's not a gift from God? 
You think you're better than others. You think you're smarter than others. You think you're more talented than others because of something in you. That is a gift from God. Would you repent if there's pride? Would you repent, repent if you have any fits of anger? Any fits of anger. Not all anger is sinful, but if you're hauling off and hitting a wall or throwing a lamp or cursing or whatever it might be, would you repent of those fits of anger? Would you repent if you are eating or drinking too much, gluttony or drunkenness? Would you find your joy in Christ and not uh, these physical comforts? Would you repent if you're being too harsh with your kids? Or conversely, if you're not disciplining them enough, would you repent? Either side that you fall on on that spectrum, would you repent? Would you repent if you're causing division in any way? Gossip, rumors, grumbling. I don't like this person. I don't like this. I don't, whatever it is, would you repent? Would you repent for any disbelief? There's just something the Bible says that you just don't believe. Would you repent of that? Maybe it's that God loves you. You just fail to believe that he loves you. You think he loves everybody else, and you're the one exception, okay? And you're the one exception. Would you repent for that disbelief? Would you repent for self-centeredness? These are all very convicting for me, okay? Would you repent of self-centeredness where you're constantly the victim? Your thoughts are not about Christ and how great he is. It's about how hard your life is. Would you repent of self-centeredness? Where are you not being a good steward of what God has given you? Maybe it's money, time, finances, family, bodily health, whatever it might be. Would you repent if you're staying away from lost people? The only people you know are Christians and you just hang out with Christians and you're only just with Christians. You're like Jonah who doesn't want to hang out with the Ninevites. Would you repent if that is the case? And then lastly, would you repent for charging God with wrongdoing? Where do you feel like God has been ungracious to you? Where do you feel like God has given you the short end of the stick? Where do you feel like God has not dealt you a very good hand? Would you repent for charging God with wrongdoing? Now, look at me. If you've repented, look at me, everybody. You're forgiven. You're loved. You don't have to carry those things anymore. God separates your sins as far as as the east is from the west. Repentance is not bad. It's good. It's where we're walking towards a cliff and God turns us around. That's a good thing. So know that if there's repentance, there's mercy. The Bible is very clear, and we'll see this when we get into 1 John, that if we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there's a second point, and this will be the last point that I want you to see here in this text. God is a God of great mercy. He is a God of so much mercy. Look how excited God is to save the Ninevites. They're pagan, they're violent, they're sexually immoral, they're worshiping idols, and God is so excited to give them mercy. He wants it more than Jonah. God is a God of tremendous mercy, as St. Jerome would say of this uh, passage in commenting on Jonah. The uncircumcised believe, but the circumcised, Jonah, remains faithless. Okay? Let me end with a little passage out of Luke, out of the Gospels. How does this relate to the Gospel? Luke 18, 9 through 14. See if this sounds anything like this passage today in Jonah. Jesus, that's the he, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Hear me. The longer you've been in church, the more you need to underline that passage, okay? And treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not like these Ninevites. I'm not like this group in society that I don't like. I'm not like these people, right? extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You get a spiritual resume, right? 
I, uh, I've been in church my whole life. I'm a good person. I don't drink. I don't have any lost friends. I don't do whatever it is. And he starts giving the spiritual resume. But the tax collector standing far off, look at this, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house. What's the word? Justified, declared righteous by God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as those helping serve communion come forward to pass the elements. Almighty God, I confess that as I go through this list of things where I need to repent, that just about all of these, if not all of them, uh, are things that I have failed to do many, many times. And so my only hope is not that I would be better. My hope is that I would not uh, just never do these things again. My hope is that there has been atonement made for me that there has been the God-man, Jesus, the one who has eternally been God, but at the incarnation also takes on a second nature, humanity, and through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, that there is mercy for me. I pray that you would convict us of that truth. I pray that no one would leave here thinking that they're great. I pray that everyone leave here thinking that you're great. I pray that nobody in here would try to do better, but they would rest in the fact that Jesus has been perfect on their behalf. If there is one here today that does not know you, this is the first time that they've realized that being a Christian doesn't mean you're a good person. It means that you're somebody who's been covered by Jesus. I pray that they would be convicted, that they would repent, that they would love you and trust you today. We'll ask it all through the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.